Truth News Network. Chaos at the border. Elected officials who don't know where they are, why they're there, or what their job is. Officials who laugh like hyenas when questioned. And when they answer, it reads like science fiction. How do you navigate this sewage? With the ship of truth. TNN. The Truth News Network. And your captain today is Dan Newman. Let's just be honest with those um, those officials those leaders that laugh like hyenas and they don't get anything done. They're inept. That's all any of us can say. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to TNN Live, the Tuesday edition. Glad you could join us here today. We're going to start off with something pretty uncomfortable. I don't know if uh, if you were watching the Monday night football game last night. Uh, It was a game between two really good teams, the Buffalo Bills at Cincinnati taking on the Cincinnati Bengals. Really important game for us because one of our kids from right here in town, a really good friend of ours, his family are really good friends of ours, he plays for the Cincinnati Bengals. Early in that game, first quarter, had an incident occur on the field. that It just rocked the world. And because of it, the NFL has postponed the Monday night football game between the Bills and the Bengals. And they did so after Bills safety, DeMar Hamlin, collapsed on the field. It was eerie to look and see what happened. It wasn't one of those, you know, football things, a hard, hard hit where somebody just got nailed like a quarterback after the ball comes out of his hand. Wasn't anything like that. He made this tackle, and then he stood up, and he just collapsed backwards. That tackle was on one of the NFL's best receivers, Cincinnati's T. Higgins, and it happened on the Bengals' second drive of the game. He appeared to stand up right after and then just fell over backwards. Players, coaches, referees, they all gathered around Hamlin as medical staff provided CPR. About 8.25 Eastern time, an ambulance took Hamlin to a local hospital. Initially, it looked like the game would just be delayed or suspended for a few minutes, but then resume. However, when it became very obvious to everybody that was able to see Hamlin lying on the field, everybody knew it was very serious. You know why? The guy died. He had cardiac arrest right there on the field, and they had to paddle him back. Now, we're talking about a 24-year-old, unbelievable athlete. He's in great condition. He's, uh, he's not a big guy at all. Those kind of things aren't supposed to happen to someone like that. Well, they rushed him to the hospital there, and uh, this morning reports are what happened was a cardiac event. You know what they're doing all day today. They're testing him for whatever they can find out that caused this to happen. Because it wasn't, as, as I said, it wasn't a violent hit. It wasn't a hit at all. Nevertheless, I have, I've been an NFL fan for years and years, decades. Um, I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen a reaction like this. That whole stadium and everyone in it just went numb. You don't think about mortality when you're young. You certainly don't think about mortality when you're a a really, really good athlete at the level of only about 1,500 others 
in America. That's all the football players in the NFL, folks, about 1,500, between 15 and 1,700 when you factor in uh, the practice squads and the people that are on IR. He was one of those guys. Especially when you're 24 years old, you never think about you're maybe not making it, maybe something grabbing you and taking you out right here when you're young. Young people aren't supposed to die. Well, the reports are he's he's in critical condition. One speculative doctor I saw early in the morning this morning was interviewed, and he made a speculation when this kind of thing happens, typically because he did have cardiac arrest right on the field, and they had to paddle him back. They may actually, he is officially in critical condition in the hospital. This doctor said they may have him in an induced coma while they run these tests today, making sure that uh, they find out what the cause of it is. My guess is Mr. Hamlin, his NFL football career and his professional football career is over. Nobody, especially DeMar Hamlin, needs to suit up and play football with this kind of thing maybe happening again and maybe taking him out. We normally don't get into football stuff here, but that was epic. Nothing like that's ever happened in the NFL. Nobody knew what to do. Obviously, there was no game plan. There was nothing in the uh, operations uh, operations manual of the NFL on how to run a football game about an incident like this happened. So we saw coaches on phones. They were obviously talking to their owners, also talking to the NFL offices in New York. The NFL had to officially make the call of the game. And they haven't even said yet if they're going to finish it or start it over or even play it at all. And that's a big deal because both of these teams are very good players, two of the best in the NFL. And we're down to just two games in this season. Playoffs at stake. And we're talking about tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue for teams and these players on these playoff teams. So it's a really big deal. They got to finish the game. Now, with that in mind, I wonder if the Bills stayed in Cincinnati last night or if they did as a visiting team normally does, go jump on a plane and go home after the game late at night. If that's the case and they've got to get this game in, There'll be a return trip to Cincinnati before the playoffs. It's going to be interesting to watch it. I just wanted to touch on that at the top of the show. Uh, what do we have on online for you today? bunch of very important information. It's Tuesday. Our investigative journalist, Steve Baker, will be with us at the top of the next hour. You may have seen this morning the story published early at truthnewsnet.org. Steve wrote it. Uh, We've never posted one of his stories before. And I want to tell you right up front, I edited his story. And I'm going to gig him when he comes on at 10 o'clock because he used a four-letter word in the story. We don't use four-letter words here. We just don't do it. So I took the four-letter word out and put another expletive that's not a four-letter word. It's not a curse word in it. But there's a big thing going on still about the January 6th committee. 
And Steve's all up in that, as you guys know. He's uncovered some more stuff, some very sinister stuff. And it seems like every few days we find out more and more of the January 6th committee and everything that went along with it that we saw and the numerous larger number of things that went on that we didn't see, as those get exposed to us, we find out there was a whole lot of evil going on that day. And I'm not talking about just the people that, you know, broke into the Capitol and tore up a lot of things that hurt people. There were no shootings that happened there, except the one where the Capitol Police shot and killed Ashley Babbitt, uh, that American that was in the Capitol, she was unarmed, a uh, naval veteran, and uh, I saw the video. It was a close-up. It actually almost looked like it was staged. Someone standing behind, off the left shoulder of that Capitol Police officer that shot her with her right in front of him, raises his gun. She's not threatening anybody. She doesn't have anything in her hands. We'll never probably never know why he shot her because he didn't get uh, interviewed or he didn't get in any trouble at all for shooting and killing her. He shot her on the left side of the back of her neck and he hit an artery and she bled out right there on the floor. But if you listen to the January 6th committee, all hell broke loose that day and it all, everything that happened pointed said, guess who? Donald Trump. It's all about Trump. It's all about get Trump. Well, we'll get into that with Steve at the top of the hour, his new stuff. And it's some good, real, interesting stuff that everybody needs to know. It's it's really interesting to me how hard it is to get facts out of this government. I mean, nobody wants to come clean about anything. I wish we could uncover maybe just 10% of the wrongdoing and the sources and the reasons for the wrongdoing, especially in this administration. I don't think you or I, and I don't care how old you are. I'm 69. I know I haven't seen a presidential administration this evil, including that of Richard Nixon. Wow. That's a stretch, isn't it? What Richard Nixon did Looks like a guy stealing a candy bar from a convenience store compared to what the Biden administration is doing. And they just thumb it in our faces. They don't really give a rip. They thumb their noses and just walk on through and say, we're who we are. We control everything in the nation. We're the government. So you just sit down and shut up. We'll tell you what to do and when to do it. Much going on today. Today is a big day where Republicans take over the House. But there is a lot of stuff going on with that turnover. And what is it? It's about the House Speaker job. Very few people realize this, but when a new Congress starts every two years officially, today they gavel it in. There are very few people that returned that are going to um, be in office when this starts because they have to be sworn in, but they can't be sworn in. The new ones can't be sworn in, and the old ones, the returning, the incumbents, can't sit down. They can do no business whatsoever 
until they pick a leader. And there's a lot of controversy about that. We're going to get into that in just a minute. But as we do here, we follow our opening up with some really good songs. Um, Really good songs. Like Earth, Wind, and Fire. One of my favorites of all time. This is one of their best songs. Serpentine Fire.
cannot listen to that song, pretty much any song they do, without tapping your foot, singing along with it. They were really good. They were uh, really at the top of the charts at the turn of the 70s into the 80s. And I was just a little kid then. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) You believe that, don't you? Well, put it this way, I was born in 1953, so I'm a 69-year-old kid. Many that know me and know me well know that often I act like a kid. I forgot to mention when I was talking about the the Buffalo Bills safety that uh, actually basically died on the field last night in the game in Cincinnati against the Bengals. Um, He's alive. They actually paddled him back right there on the field. Those AEDs, you see them in some places hanging on the walls, kind of like fire extinguishers, and it has AED above it. That's what those things are for. Somebody, if they have cardiac arrest, you can grab those things, and it's very simple. You can't mess them up. It comes with just pads that you put on the person's chest. There are instructions that come with it, and you just click a button, and it does what it's supposed to do. Anyway, one good thing. I guess good things happen to good people when bad circumstances catch them. One good thing that happened. This young man is very active in his community in Pennsylvania back home, and he started... Uh, a foundation to help kids out, specific kids, I forget which ones it is. And he had raised, and then himself had put a $100,000, $200,000 all together in that. No more than 200000 Overnight, there were $3 million worth of donations to his foundation. Nobody said anything about it. That just tells you how Americans are when they see a worthy cause and they know that it's a worthy cause and it's needed and necessary and any donations they make are going to be used well for a lot of other people, people found that last night and just started donating online. Kudos to the American people. Now let's get into what's happening right now this morning in the Capitol. Seating a new House majority the Republicans, but they don't have a speaker. Now, they're going to have to elect a speaker today. The odds on is the majority leader, Kevin McCarthy. Everybody knows who he is. He's been, in all particular cases, a very good majority, excuse me, minority leader. It's hard for me to keep up. You got the House speaker on the House side. Then you have the majority leader of the controlling Uh, political party, and then you have the minority leader. So it's hard to keep those up. Anyway, Nancy Pelosi's the outgoing House Speaker. She did stay in office. She was reelected, so she says she's going to hang around for this term. But they got to pass the baton, and there's a problem. There apparently aren't enough Republicans that have come out and said, we will support Kevin McCarthy When we vote first thing this morning, they can't do anything without electing their leader. So all of these things that they've been talking about for weeks and even months, Congressman Mike Johnson on this show, he's talked to us two or three times about what the House is going to do 
and holding this administration accountable and finding out the wrongdoing that's gone on. Congressman Johnson said they they have a stack high, feet high, of these subpoenas that they're going to send out when they get in control, which can happen until they elect a leader today. So the leader, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, yesterday he was asked what he was going to think about today because it's not looking like it's going to be smooth sailing. And he told reporters today was going to be a good day after his staff spent the whole morning yesterday moving his office furniture into the speaker's chambers. I guess Kevin's got a lot of faith. He looked somewhat stressed yesterday afternoon. The California Republican was rushing out of the Capitol when reporters asked him about the following days, today, housewide vote to elect their chamber's leader. His campaign for the gavel has been pretty bumpy for the last few weeks, but the pressure has ramped up in the last 48 hours with as many as 15 Republican members, they say they're ready to vote against him. And based upon the number of Republicans that are in office and will be seated when uh, they, they can call in to session the House, he can only lose four votes and still clinch victory. Earlier yesterday, a staff had been seen moving belongings and wheeling carts into the House Speaker's office at the Capitol. It's standard protocol, but it means he'll have to move back out if more than four House Republicans rebel against this cause, which is becoming an increasingly likely scenario. Now, Mike Johnson explained to us, in fact, let me let me go find Mike's... Uh, I'm just going to read you exactly, because I asked him, what happens if Kevin McCarthy is not chosen on that day? Here's what he says. As of today, Kevin does not have the votes. If he fails to get 218 on multiple ballots, in other words, they'll vote one time. Now, it's not just Republicans that vote for the Speaker. Everybody in the House votes, but obviously... The Republicans have the majority, so if every member of the Republican Party voted, he would get 222 votes, which would be four over the number he needs. The majority in the House, that number, is 218. They would nominate someone else to be voted for, and then they would vote for that person. They could renominate Kevin, they could renominate, or they could nominate someone else. Steve Scalise, Mike said in this text to me, Steve Scalise will be nominated next. If Scalise can't reach that 218 number, most people expect that Mike Johnson will be nominated next. Nobody knows what's going to happen, he said, but there's 100% certainty the next speaker will be a Republican. There is a way, oh, God forbid, But there is a way, a very remote possibility, that if the Republicans can't come up with 218 and Democrats do what they do so well, they get people to line up with them. Look what they did in the Senate. 
Look what they did in the Senate recently. I mean, these massive bills, they just go across the aisle and grab a bunch of Republicans to vote with them on these monstrous bills. So don't count it as an automatic thing that McCarthy's going to be able to keep his furniture in the Speaker's office, because that may change. There's a lot of other stuff that's going on that has been going on. Don't have a lot of uh, Joe Biden stuff in the news today, which, to be honest with you, is kind of pleasant for me. We have Tulsi Gabbard in the news today. We're actually going to let you listen to a couple of things that she did. She was sitting in this past week for some of the regulars on the evening shows on Fox News. It's always kind of strange when I see her on Fox because she's been a hardcore Democrat ever since I've known her. Former representative from Hawaii uh, is a decorated officer in the U.S. military. She's really, really sharp. But anyway, she, a few weeks ago, formally pulled out of the Democrat Party. Now, she's an independent. She's not Republican. But she hosted a couple of nights, and it was on Tucker. And um, one particular thing that came up the other night when she was on Tucker was that the January 6th committee, if you'll remember, they subpoenaed Trump to come and testify. And he responded he wasn't going to come, and he sued the committee for it. They subpoenaed him. And he basically said, stick it in your ear or anywhere else. But very interestingly, they withdrew that subpoena. What's that all about? In October, the January 6th committee issued a subpoena to Donald Trump seeking access to various records from his time in the White House. Now, this was a clear violation of the principle of separation of powers, and it was done for political reasons. So Harmeet Dillon filed a lawsuit against the January 6th committee to contest the subpoena. And this week, the committee backed down and withdrew that subpoena. Harmeet Dillon is the head of Dillon Law Group. She's also running to be chair of the RNC. Uh, Harmeet, thank you so much for being here. I wonder if you could just start off with a little bit of context for those at home who wonder, what was the big deal about this subpoena? Why did it warrant a lawsuit? And why is it important for the country uh, that you prevailed in this lawsuit? Well, thank you for asking, Tulsi. So this January 6th committee, as we all know, has been going on for a year and a half, and it, I would call it an extended advertisement uh, with, uh, with no actual legal significance, but all political by the January 6th committee and the Democrats. They pretty much used it as a commercial for their own side for the midterm election. So now the only correct purpose of a House Select Committee investigation is really towards legislation. And in this case, the one piece of legislation that came out of the January 6th committee was passed in September, uh, having to do with the Electoral Count Act. And so after that is when they issued the subpoena for Donald Trump and sought extensive records, I mean, to the point of probably would have been hundreds of thousands of documents from his presidency. And so the reason why we fought back is really to uh, stand for the principle of separation of powers. And 
this is not the first time that a president or former president has been subpoenaed by the House, and it would have been the first time that one actually testified if he had gone forward and had not quashed the subpoena. In fact, President Truman, many years ago, was also subpoenaed after he left office, and he very clearly articulated the same principles that we did in our lawsuit. So in addition to being overbroad, in addition to being vague, in addition to not uh, pursuing a proper legislative purpose. We articulated separation of powers issues, and we filed that lawsuit in Florida, where President Trump lives. And, you know, some people are saying, oh, Harmeet, they just let the clock run out. You know, that it's no big deal. But actually, if the House wanted to fight our lawsuit, they could have immediately stepped up. They were served promptly. They could have stepped up and engaged with us and had a court ruling on the issue. They did not want a court ruling on the issue. They knew they were wrong. They knew they were likely to lose. And as a result, they never fought us in court. And, you know, they had to back down yesterday. So we're very pleased with the results for the office of the presidency and for the concept of separation of powers. Yeah, Harmeet, the, the, their reaction and response literally proves your point, right, that this was about uh, political moves before the election. It was about posturing and it was about continuing to show their own political objectives that they were uh, pursuing, knowing that it was a futile effort uh, from the beginning. Thank you so much for your expertise, expertise and your leadership and voice on this and so many other issues. Thank you, Tulsi. She's really sharp. Both Tulsi and Harmeet Dillon is the attorney that you heard Tulsi Gabbard speaking to there. I thought that was really interesting. You know, I knew that he was subpoenaed, and I knew they they demanded all kind of things, and that there was a lawsuit involved to uh, protect the former president for an illegally issued subpoena. But I didn't even think about what would happen if the January 6th committee did nothing about it. That subpoena would still be out there, hanging out there. Could you imagine at some point in the future somebody walked over and picked it up and said, hey, I'm going to federal court. We're going to make Trump provide all of those documents, all of those interviews, all that testimony. We're going to make him do it. And he would give it to the House. Anyway, I think it's good that it's over. We'll have another little back and forth with Tulsi Gabbard later in the show, probably in uh, the second hour and the second half, somewhere between 10.30 and 11 Central. And she is talking to this Republican member of the House from New York, Santos. Have you heard about this guy? We'll get into it more then. But you're going to want to make sure you hear this because she goes nuts on this Republican who, after the election, when he was elected just recently, November, He was elected, and he told all kind of lies to get people to vote for him. Now, Republicans aren't supposed to lie. (laughs) That's what a lot of people think Republicans don't do is lie. Oh, my gosh. Everybody in politics is going to either lie or embellish so much about things. Maybe they don't cross the line, but they walk right up to it, but... Honestly, most politicians lie out of their teeth. I'm just saying, it's a dirty world. That's one reason why I just can't imagine anybody that's a good person, especially a Christian, honest uh, person wanting to get into politics because it seems to most Americans that if you do that, you're going to tell lies. 
This guy, <laughs> he got busted for lying. And you're going to hear Tulsi, you're going to hear her drill him. And uh, it's really kind of interesting. As we look back at 2022, let's just look at crime. A lot of information is coming out now at the turn of the calendar. Crime surges in New York City in 2022, also Chicago, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New Orleans. That's based upon law enforcement data. Experts blame part of that on liberal prosecutors who don't pursue the charges in many of these criminal cases. Crime overall has been increasing in cities like New York and Chicago in part because of decreases in policing, decreases in prosecution, and incarceration. Some crimes rose as murders or homicides fell in New York City, Chicago, Philadelphia, and Los Angeles compared to 2021. Robbery surging in New Orleans and San Francisco. Heritage Foundation senior legal fellow Cully Stimson told the Daily Caller News Foundation that crime has exploded since 2015 in cities with George Soros-inspired prosecutors, defund the police rhetoric, and cuts, cuts of police force funding and police demoralization. New York City's year-to-date murder complaints through the 25th Christmas Day decreased, but Rapes, robberies, felony assault, burglary, grand larceny, grand larceny auto complaints all rose. Manhattan Institute fellow Hannah Myers said policing, prosecution, and incarceration decreases have contributed to overall rising crime in big cities like New York. Drops in arrest have been spurred by, among other things, Policies that dissuade officers from engaging suspects, such as New York City's diaphragm law. I don't even know what that law means, diaphragm. I know what your diaphragm is. Meyer said this increases the potential risk to cops of physical injury or professional, legal, and reputational consequences from grappling with suspects. There you go. They don't want cops to go up to the people that resist arrest and hold them. That's the world in which we live now. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg issued a memo in January last year saying that his office would treat armed robberies without a seriously injured victim or genuine risk of physical harm as misdemeanors and not pursue prison sentences for crimes other than murder, other violent felonies, sex offenses, or major white-collar crimes. But he said the next month, following public criticism, that they would prosecute anyone who harms or attempts to harm a police officer and charge commercial armed robberies as felonies. He claimed in that memo that the previous one was supposed to provide framework, but had been a source of confusion. Crime continues to grow, and it's growing almost exclusively for one reason. People in government 
people in elected positions in government at the federal, state, and local levels in the last two years have jumped on this woke bandwagon of cops are bad. Every cop is evil. They're so evil, we don't need them around. If we don't have them around, crime's going to go down. Now, there's some idiot somewhere that put that thought process together and sold it to all of the woke people that are in these big-time positions that have oversight of these police forces and their budgets and their money. And they just basically started pulling the plug. I think we'll see a swing, but I don't think this big ship is going to be easy to turn or turn quickly. It's going to take some time. And I think in especially big cities, we're going to see crimes go up even more than we've seen so far. And as long as there is so much animosity between people of different political parties, especially in government, it can only get worse. I mean, on the other side of the aisle, I'm a conservative, not registered Republican or Democrat. I'm a registered independent, but I'm very conservative. I can very easily point to the major gulfs between the way I think about law enforcement and many other people that are exactly on the other side looking at me. And there's one thing that every conservative needs to understand. There's no need to get amped up and worried and concerned about the differences that there may be between you, if you're a conservative, and people that are, they call themselves progressives, but that's not progressive. There is very little about the progressive policies of the Democrat Party. They're not progressive at all. They're about big government taking control of everything and everybody. That's what they're about. They've even, quote-unquote, come out of the closet about that. They used to be that way and govern that way, but they refused to talk about it. Now they just like, yeah, it's no big deal. That's what we're doing. And they're pushing very hard. There is very little what I call level conversing between difference of people with different political ideologies. People on the other side, people on the left, when they talk to you, if you're a conservative, and they don't like what you say, they'll just beat you to pieces verbally. They'll do everything they can to destroy you in many cases. But you look at the conservative side, and it's not because conservatives are better people or more intellectual. It's not because that at all. They understand if the world in the United States that it lives in, if everybody will understand that as governments get bigger and gain more and more power, individuality goes away. Individual rights, the citizenry, lose their power, their authority, lose their independence. And when that begins to happen, it degrades, and it continues to degrade that political and economic and social society. It continues to degrade, and it's just going to spiral down. It very seldom goes down to a certain level and then levels off. It goes all the way down 
into what they want to call as socialism, democratic socialism. There's no such thing as democratic socialism. In socialism, there's no democracy. There's no Democrat input for the people that live in that uh, atmosphere. It's just socialism or totalitarianism light, where a small group of people control everything and everybody. They hate you if you're conservative. They think you're not worthy of breathing the same air. I have people in my family that are that way. I don't dare discuss politics when we're in the same room together. And even if they ask me a a specific question about somebody running in some political race around the nation, I just basically shrug it off because I'm not going to get into it because if and when I do, if I just say, hey, look, I understand what you believe, you understand what I believe, but I'm not going to discuss it with you because if if we do, you go nuts and they hate us. And that's almost without exception. I've got close friends on Facebook If if you read any of my past Facebook stuff and the recent stuff at truthnewsnet.org over the last few years, you have no doubt I'm a hardcore conservative. And so I'm going to speak out in whatever forum I have to try to reach people and get them to just think through where they are in their political ideology and to consider something else. Not, hey, you got to come over here and change all your political philosophies. I don't do that. Give them something. Give them some fact stuff. Get away from the emotions as much as possible. But you can't do that these days. Emotions is what fires up first from the left. One of my closest friends, female, never dated, just a friend in college. She's a shrink in Washington, D.C. There's a lot of room for shrinks in Washington, D.C. And she was extremely conservative in high school and in college and even after college. We made a pact. I'm not going to look at her Facebook post, and I'm certainly, if I see one, I'm not going to comment or reply to anything she posts there. And she said she'd do the same thing for me. Another friend, a really good football player at Louisiana Tech when I was at college there. And he's a good businessman today. He is so anti-conservatism and conservatives that when he goes on Facebook, he just comes out with a Tommy gun and starts shooting at anybody that he dislikes that's a conservative in politics. We've got to get away from that atmosphere. It doesn't need to be. If you disagree with me, that means you're evil. You're a bad person. No. Disagree with somebody, but respect the fact that they have the right to disagree with you. That's the world in which we live. And we need to live and function in that world, and we need to get people to to turn their minds away from where they are by convincing them with facts that if they're 
hardcore leftists. And every one of these leftist policies, the Green New Deal, everything, climate change, big money spending, all of those kinds of things, and all this social engineering that's going on, oh my gosh. If you can get them just to listen and don't demean them, you got a better chance of getting them over than if you scream and holler. The truth. Straight. No chaser. TNN. The Truth News Network. I love going all natural. It just makes me feel better. Nothing between me and my 100% all-natural, juicy, grass-fed beef. Introducing the all-natural burger, the first ever in fast food. With no antibiotics, no added hormones, and no steroids. Only at Carl's Jr. What are you doing? Should we pick him up? He has Bud Light. He has an axe. But he has Bud Light. And an axe. I'm sure there's a reason for it. Hey, buddy. What's with the axe? It's a bottle opener. Hop in. Refreshingly smooth Bud Light. Always worth it. Look, here's Bud Light. And a chainsaw. Oh, that's a quiet, peaceful song, isn't it? I like music. Uh, what's your favorite kind of music? Are you a country person? Maybe you're top 40. Maybe you're reggae. Maybe you're a hardcore rock, acid rock. I'm just a, a music guy. I love music. I always have. Now, my favorite music smooth jazz and I'm a keyboard guy um, I've always been that just kind of I don't know the chord progressions and the smooth sounds of most smooth jazz that's why they call it smooth jazz has always drawn me to them our daughters call it elevator music they hate it and of course I love Christian music too I've got a diverse appetite but I'm telling you and bringing that up now to get you to think about that in the context of what we talked about going into that break. Just because people think differently than you do about anything or about everything, that doesn't mean that they're evil and you're good. We need to stop drawing those kinds of lines and try to find consensus, try to compel people by giving them facts and doing your best to get them to listen to you. You know, it's one thing to listen to you, and it's another thing to hear. You know what I'm talking about? Just because you scream and holler at somebody, they may listen to you, but they're not going to hear what you're saying in the screaming and hollering. You want to compel somebody? Give them some reason to make a change. Don't give them reasons to move forward even further away from where you are. And I'm talking specifically about conservatism 
and leftist ideology. Well, you want to jump in on another thing like that, a social ill? The fight today against obesity. You know what it comes from? It's rooted in racism. Now, that's according to a Scientific American essay that claimed that black women consistently experience weightism. Listen to that. W-E-I-G-H-T-I-S-M. We got another ism. Weightism in addition to sexism and racism. And the prescribing of weight loss has long since proven to be ineffective. So in a tweet from this Scientific American Twitter account shared last week, late in the week, shared the piece, The Popular Guide, which is the oldest continuously published magazine in the U.S. It claimed in the tweet, the heightened concern about black women's weight reflects the racist stigmatization of their bodies. It also ignores how interrelated social factors impact black women's health, it added. Now, I got to be honest with you. I can't say, oh, this is not true. I can't do it because I don't relate to that. They'll tell you really quickly if you come back a conservative and say, that doesn't make any sense. You have no idea how black women feel. Isn't that the way they demean every conservative ideal? LGBTQ, transgender. You can't talk about that. You don't experience that. But we've got to let everybody that does feel that and think that, we got to let them just go for it and support them. This piece in the Scientific American originally was published, issue one of the Science Magazine, entitled The Racist Roots of Fighting Obesity. It was authored by Sabrina Strings, an associate professor of sociology at University of California, Irvine, and Lindo, formerly Linda Bacon, a self-proclaimed genderqueer who serves as an associate nutritionist at the University of California, Davis. While they put out there that the prescribing of weight loss to black women ignores barriers to their health, they then talk about the health challenges that they face. Black people and black women in particular face considerable health challenges, it begins. Compare with their rates in other racial groups, chronic cardiovascular, inflammatory, and metabolic risk factors have been found to be elevated in black women, even after controlling for behaviors like smoking, physical exercise, or dietary variables. To top that, the piece claims black women have also been identified as the subgroup with the highest body mass index. It's BMI, body mass index, in the entire U.S. Four out of five are classified as either overweight or obese. Many doctors, the author of this piece says, have claimed that black women's excess weight is the main cause of their poor health outcomes, often without fully testing or diagnosing them. While there's been a massive public health campaign urging fat people to eat right, 
eat less, and lose weight, black women have been specifically targeted, they allege. Now, let me just say this, and we'll move on. There are statistics, specific statistics, that can verify or diffuse this entire thought process. But instead of looking at the facts or listening to the facts or reasoning about the facts in the statistics, you just got to play the race card. I mean, that's the go-to of the left. And boy, they've got some. I mean, they've got a bevy of isms in their quiver that they can pull out and that they do pull out at any moment and throw them in our faces. I'm tempted often just to get right back in their faces, but you know what? If you do that, you're never going to get any uh, agreement on anything because they automatically think you're attacking them. And if their fundamental position is if they're overweight, obese, or whatever, and you say anything that they don't agree with, you're a racist. And that shocks me when I heard this. I think you can probably tell. But I got to be honest with you. I can't, I just can't tell you how an African woman that's overweight, how she feels. I can't say that. But what I can tell you is in almost every case, every case that I know personally, when you eat a bunch, you gain weight. If you eat a bunch and don't exercise, you're going to gain weight and it's going to be harder to keep it off or get it off. Now, that's not racial facts. That's biological facts. That's just the way it works. Now, are there a lot of other social and philosophical and mental and emotional issues that go along with that? Absolutely, yes. We could probably get my friend from Washington, D.C., the shrink on the phone, and she could tell us exactly what all of this means. Steve Baker, at the top of the hour, we've got about six minutes. I want to get this here. You heard Tulsi Gabbard a few minutes ago, but I want you to hear her go after this Republican that is not a candidate. He was elected a Republican beat an incumbent Democrat in New York for a seat in the House. Santos is his name. Tulsi Gabbard took him on. She was sitting in on the Tucker Carlson show, and she went after him because it was exposed after he was elected. He just told all kind of lies. You'll hear Santos, Tulsi, and Dave Rubin. This is actually coming from the Dave Rubin show. One of the people that I think is is the most interesting in, in politics or media right now, which is Tulsi Gabbard, again, who is a, you guys know this, she was a Democrat, a progressive, a lefty her entire life. She has now at least left the Democrat party. She goes on Tucker a lot. She's hanging out with you know crazy right-wingers like Dave Rubin. Uh, and she has been guest hosting for Tucker. And she had on, just over the last couple of days, uh, there is a Republican congressman, newly elected Republican congressman, George Santos. And you may have heard about this story. It has now turned out as he has been elected. So he, he won, he is now a, a congressional freshman. Uh, it is turning out that his entire resume is a lie. Not only the places that he worked, but he pretended that 
he had family members who I think were Holocaust survivors. Then I think he said he was gay, but it turned out he was married to a woman. Like it, it's so, it's like such a crazy, ridiculous story. Anyway, Tulsi, guest hosting for Tucker, had him on and did what Barbara Walters did. Did she asked the tough questions? You don't really seem to be taking this seriously. You've apologized. You said you've made mistakes, but you've outright lied. A lie is not an embellishment on a resume. You said you worked at Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. But they've said, we've got no record of this guy working for us. You've said you've gone to and graduated from these universities, but they've said, well, we've got no record of that. These are blatant lies, and it calls into question how your constituents and the American people can believe anything that you may say when you are standing on the floor of the House of Representatives, supposedly fighting for them. That's the real issue here. Well, look, I, and I, I agree with what you're saying, and as I stated, and I continue... We can debate my my resume and how I worked with firms such as Goldman. Is it debatable or is it just false? No, it's debatable or is it just debatable? No, no, it's not false at all. It's it's debatable. I can I can sit down and explain to you what you can do in private equity, in in capital intro, via servicing limited partners and general partners, and we can have this discussion that's going to go way above the American people's head. But that's not what I campaigned on. I campaigned on delivering results wow. for the American people by, by lowering inflation. I can sit down, and if you want to have that discussion, I'd be glad to Tulsi to explain that to you Co- and make Congress sure that we, we we settle the score. That this is not about settling scores, and I think you just you just kind of highlighted, I think, my concern and the concern that people at home have. You're saying that this discussion will go way above the heads of the American people, basically insulting their intelligence. I actually don't even want to make this about this Santos guy, and, and it's to some degree, I don't even care that he lied about his resume. People lie about all sorts of things now. I would prefer that they did not, but the media now... The, the rest of the media, which is not interviewing him, which is just talking about him, is saying he has to step down and how could he lie? And oh my God, lying is so bad. And again, I don't like lying. Uh, but if only they had ever asked questions about another guy who lies a lot, because there's this guy who's always stumbling and fumbling around. Do you know who I'm talking about? And he's always kind of like wandering and saying crazy things and pretty much lying about everything. I, I, I got raised in the black church. He knows I'm not kidding. I got my education for real in the black church. And that's not hyperbole. It's a fact. I probably uh, went to shul more than many of you did. <laughs> you all think I'm kidding. He can tell you. I'm <laughs> I uh, was sort of raised uh, in the Puerto Rican community at home politically. I just have one thing to say. Uh, say it, Mr. President, (laughs) say it, (laughs) my gosh, that's unbelievable. Well, George Santos, I guess he is the convicted in public liar in the House of Representatives as a Republican. And then, of course, you just heard President, Commander-in-Chief, and he's been busted for lying over and over and over again. Mr. Breaker, Mr. Steve Baker, will join us right after this. You don't want to miss today. Papa John is not interested in quality. He's obsessed with it. Because Papa John's a pizza maker. It's what he does. That's why you've got Papa's quality guarantee. Signed by the man himself. 
love your pizza, or we'll deliver another absolutely free. It's my guarantee. Better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's. And right now, save 25% when you spend 25 pounds or more online. I'm Chad Hall, and I'm here with the first ever Silverado ZR2. This is probably the first time you've seen this truck, but I've been racing a prototype version for over a year. We just inspired this pre-production truck you see behind me. Let's go see what it'll do. Copy. You've got phenomenal power, acceleration, good ground clearance, skid protection, and you've got the Multimatic GSSV shocks, so it's just gonna be that much more of a fun truck. It's an amazing truck. You're going to want to get your hands on one. Here's the latest traffic report. Looks like miles of trouble-free driving with Napa Auto Parts. Your local Napa Auto Parts dealer in Modesto has a full line of quality parts for your car or truck. Napa Auto Parts keeps America running and Modesto Auto and Truck is ready to keep your vehicle running in tip-top shape for years to come. So if you think your car or truck needs help under the hood, think of Napa Auto Parts at Modesto Auto and Truck Parts, 924 G Street in downtown Modesto, 529-8342, 529-8342. In a world of weapons-grade stupidity, your defense is the truth. TNN, the Truth News Network. Now, I didn't plan that bump in. Pete Moss said, uh, looking at weapons-grade stupidity as an introduction to Steve Baker. (laughs) (laughs) But it just happened to come up in the rotation. I'm picking, I'm picking, yours isn't weapons-grade. It's just plain old stupidity that I share with you equally. I guess maybe. Well, I should have, I should address that because I will tell you what I was reading last night. This is one of my new year's resolutions is that every time I see a ridiculous statement or meme or relationship advice or a TikTok uh, reel from uh, AOC, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, I'm going to go read one of the founder's letters, uh, one of the letters between Jefferson and, and Adams. And so that's my, that's one of my new year's resolutions. And so I had, I had to, I had to do that last night. So Uh-oh. last night when I went to bed, I turned off all the devices because I read something from Ocasio-Cortez, Miss Cortez. And I started reading through some of the uh, exchanges from Jefferson and Thomas. And I will tell you, uh, I mean, Jefferson and uh, um, Adams. Adams. And I, will, and I will tell you, there is nothing more humbling, indeed humiliating, than reading the correspondence between those two men when you think you know what's going on in the world. And you think you have a decent grasp of the world. And you think you have a modicum of reasonable intelligence. And you start reading to men who start just casually speaking to each other in Greek, Latin, French, without having to translate it for each other. And, and then back and forth about deep histories of the world, politics, religion, uh, the state of affairs and and all the regions of, of the world at the time, what they were, what these two men were aware of and their depth of their knowledge, the depth of their intellect. 
and and the the things that they thought were important to share uh, in communications with one another and these lengthy uh, letters between the two just so, makes you absolutely so, humble. So what you're I saying, is, what, we do today. what you're saying is probably neither one of those gentlemen would uh, get engrossed in a conversation with AOC talking specifically about <laughs> politics, I'm sure. Well, it's it, it's interesting because in some of those letters, they do address some of the, uh, let's how, how, as they might more politely put it, some of those more uh, intellectually inferior to themselves who were you know, operating within government, even even in their own day, in, even in their own time, when they were uh, engaged in government before their respective retirements, they would they would uh, they were they were well aware that they were above the pack. <laughs> uh, Thomas Jefferson, I loved his writings. I, I I read a lot of his stuff. One of the best things he ever wrote, and I'm paraphrasing it because I don't have it in front of me. He said, "If it if it if to go to heaven." If it required being in a political party, I wouldn't go to heaven. (laughs) (laughs) So here's a guy. I mean, he was, I don't know anybody that was bigger or more into politics than was Thomas Jefferson. And he's just telling it, it all sucks. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and and one of the letters I read last night was, was one of his laments against the um, descent into party schisms i mean this was a this was a not just a brilliant um essay on what was happening between the tories and the whigs and the and the, the the early parties right after the founding of this country but uh he was uh, he was lamenting that they were on the verge of dismantling what he and adams had put together just because of their party loyalties and therefore the the fact that they were more uh, concerned with, just as we see today, with party lines than they are with the the uh, future, the prosperity, the direction of our country. Hey, we saw that just play out just exactly like you described it there in this January 6th select committee. Why did they <laughs> give it such a grandiose name? It wasn't just a committee. It was the select committee, and it was nothing more than a witch hunt. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to get into all of that. I just brought it up. The real thing I want to get into is I want you to dig and give us all the skinny about this guy, Ray Epps. I told the folks that you did another Twitter dump the other night and a bunch of them went and looked at it mm-hmm. and we published your screed about that dump. We published it this morning at truthnewsnet.org. And I got to be honest with you, you know, when it comes to somebody else's writing published on our, our, uh, website, I'm the editor, I'm the editor in chief, I'm the editor. And in your first sentence, I had to edit your first sentence. Um, Um, you got to understand you've forgotten. You came up in the South. You came up in Louisiana. You grew up in the church. You don't write the words. Damn it. You don't use the word damn. There is a a really good replacement that's a four-letter word. It's called darn. So I I replaced you. I edited you. Don't get your feelings hurt. But the word I the word I used was biblical. And darn it isn't. There you go. 
There you go. <laughs> that's, that's all I can say about that. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so Ray Ups is back in the news again, and, and nothing would please me more, Dan, if I never had to say that name, read that name, <laughs> write about that name again. Oh, my God. Uh, he, 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 he's, he's an unbelievable figure. Uh, but when I, and when I say unbelievable, he's an unbelievable in terms of the story surrounding him, both the story that he has created about himself, the story that has been shared in mainstream media, and of course, obviously, the story that has been now uh, propagated and perpetuated by the unselect committee. Let's call them the unselect committee because they were unselected. Um, the This is the first time in the history of our republic that the opposition party was disallowed by the leadership of the majority party to seat their own members on a committee. And that was in the case of this. That's how important it was for this party. And let's just call her out by name. This was that important for Ms. Nancy Pelosi to, in her own words, and I quote, to establish and preserve the narrative of January 6th. I don't need to parse that out too specifically, do I? To establish no. and preserve <laughs> the narrative of January 6th. I got a text. That's why it was so important for them to seat their own choices on this committee. I got a text early this morning from the West Coast from Peter Lloyd, and it was it was kind of cute. He said, we need to change her name. Uh, she's no longer going to be the House Speaker. We just need to call her Miss information <laughs> myth information yeah <laughs> everybody would know you're talking about nancy yeah get back yeah. to ray I'll, I'll just go with yeah yeah well this this guy is back in the news again and he's trending as they say as the kids say today because the unselect committee released transcripts they did a dump of roughly 140 transcripts uh, from that and by the way when you click on those transcripts this morning, you can't, you can no longer access them. You could only access them for a few days. There's been, I'm taking a, a, a long path to get to Ray Epps, but I think that this is important for your uh, listeners to hear. There were roughly somewhere in the vicinity of 1,200 views by the House uh, Select Committee, or, or interviews rather, 1,200 individuals that they interviewed. They have only released into the public sphere about 140 of those transcripts, entire transcripts of those interviews of the 1,200. Well, the that's, day, be, that's, because today, of, that's because of misinformation. That's right. That's right. Myth Pelosi. And because of that, there's a unique rule that when these committees do not release these interviews, these transcripts into the public, after the committee is dissolved, they automatically are transferred to the National Archive, where at the minimum, it can take 20 years before they're released to the public, and if they're marked sensitive, as long as 50 years before they're released. This morning, with the transfer of, of the House, uh, the, or the uh, as, how, how do they say it, once the uh, previous Congress was dissolved, and that's what they do every two years. Actually, dissolve the previous con uh, uh, Congress, and then they then they reinstitute it again with a you know a new vote as they swear in the new members. And that's what happened today. Well, with the dissolution of the previous Congress, 
those files disappeared this morning. I went to click on one to read this morning in my continued effort to understand all that's been going on in this process, and they have already been archived. I couldn't even access them this morning. I'm sure because they were out there, somebody has put them in as archived them. I'll be able to find them, but they're no longer available on the government's own website. So there you go. That's something that everyone needs to know is that these records now are many, most of them were never released. So it's a, it's, it's possible we won't see them for decades, which is unthinkable in, in a uh, free speech open society like we are supposed to be. We shouldn't even question or get surprised when these kind of things happen because on the left, and there may be some of it to some extent on the right, but really on the left all the time, they don't feel like they need to let the American people have access to anything and everything. After all, no, they, exactly. they, they've subscribed to the thought process that it's not government of, by, and for the people, it's government of, by, and for the government. And they're the government, therefore, they can do anything they want. They can say anything they want. And if you disagree, you just need to go sit down and shut up. Well, the thing about Ray Epps and the reason why he popped on all of our radar screens late last year was, well, for some of us, he popped up a little bit earlier because we were aware that early on in the process of the FBI and other agencies tracking down the January 6th uh, offenders, that there were, and, and still are, there, there are multiple lists online of people looking for unidentified, as yet unidentified persons that were either involved in violence or property destruction or just were trespassing. And that, you know, that these lists are long. The FBI actually maintains their own website for FBI most wanted January 6th persons. And then there are other independent agencies. One, uh, the most uh, popular is called the Sedition Hunters. And this is a, ostensibly a private group, but we're pretty well uh, convinced that they are also a Fed funded organization. But this, this, uh, FBI website, and this is government. This is the, this is the FBI. They deleted quite a few people from their most wanted list, um, July 1st of last year. They were on there now, and then they were just suddenly gone. Well, Ray Epps was number 16. He wasn't, you know, far down. He wasn't number 2000 on the list. He was number 16 on the most wanted list for January 6th offenses because he has been, as we've all seen, he's been caught on video. He was captured on video rather being very vocal about calling people to go into the Capitol, both on the evening of January 5th, uh, there in BLM square in Washington, DC. And then on the morning of the uh, rally at the ellipse, he was pointing toward the Capitol and showing people where to go and says, this is where we need to go. As soon as the speech is over, we've got to go to the Capitol. Now, interestingly, Ray Epps didn't wait until the speech. One of, part of his story is that he went to D.C. with his son to see Trump's speech, but Ray Epps didn't attend Trump's speech. As a matter of fact, Ray Epps was standing on the front line of the first two uh, battle line breaches. And he participated in those breaches and he was there when they happened. And in both of those breaches, this is another thing that the MSM is very hesitant to share with the American public is that both of those battle line breaches, barricade breaches. And the, and the second one was a police line is that um, 
both of those happened long before Trump even concluded his remarks down at the ellipse. So there was actively something going on. There was something organized up at the Capitol that day, and Epps was right in the middle of it. So the fact that he was caught on video not only encouraging people to go to the Capitol and indeed go into the Capitol, he was also captured on video at both of those barricade breaches. And so with all of this information available to the public, those of us that were following it early, we knew who Epps was. And then with the deletion of his name and photo from the FBI uh, files on uh, July 1st of last uh, of 2021, not last year, I forget, we're in a 2023 now, but in 2021. Uh, and then the subsequent um, explosion of information about Epps because a online news source called Revolver did an expository um, video uh, compilation on Epps particularly and kind of exploded from there and he became well known. And so the accusation from that point forward was is that the right wing uh, had created uh, this conspiracy theory around this innocent guy from Arizona <laughs> and turning him into some sort of FBI confidential human source or an F or a federal plant or something of that nature. And so that's that's what happened. And immediately the mainstream press came to his defense. They began writing articles. And suddenly one of the most unique things that happened and uh, happens in these weird times that we uh, inhabit right now, uh, Dan, is that somehow, some way, this guy who is A, a former Marine, B, a former Oath Keeper, uh, C, a guy who claims that he was not only a Trump supporter, but he was a Trump supporter and an election denier. He was opposed to the uh, to the election results in 2020. Uh, and there were so many other things in his story that should have made him a pariah, should have made him kryptonite to the to the American left, particularly to the American left wing media, particularly to the Democratic Party itself. And suddenly he became a protectee of those people. And the MSM started writing apologetics articles defending him and covering for him. And suddenly the House Select Committee brings him in and they have two interviews with him in which they throw him uh, 97 pages worth of softball questions and, and kid glove handling uh, to, the, to the extent of, as I described it in my article that you posted on your website, and thank you for that even with the editing out the biblical word. <laughs> the fact is, is that they actually treated him as though he was the um, star witness in, in a trial, and it was he was under direct examination by his own attorney, and the attorney was offering him leading questions so that he could then be led into the appropriate and correct answer that they needed to get on the record for the trial. And when you read that transcript, that's exactly what happened. Well, New Year's Day, I downloaded the transcript. It, you could still access the files on the government website uh, at that time. New Year's Day, I got my cup of coffee, my cigar. We had a warm day here in, in uh, North Carolina. I sat out on my porch. I downloaded the transcript and I started reading and I got to page 35 before I just, I mean, I hit the wall and I was, my blood was boiling. When it I took, saw you, that, it our, took you that long? It didn't. I mean, I was already, I was already well aware of what was developing. I was, I was 
extremely aware of, as I said, this uh, leading question. And, and by the way, with the, because the, the select committee is not a trial per se, uh, it is, there's no um, cross-examination. There's no objections coming from the other side saying, yeah, objection, leading question, your honor, sustained. That, none of that's going on. So these, these committee members appointed by Nancy Pelosi herself, including the Republicans, uh, Adam Kinzinger and uh, Liz Cheney. No, Cheney wasn't in on this particular interview, but Kinzinger uh, played a large role in it. And at one point, uh, by the time I got to page 35, he basically uh, said to him, he said, so you really weren't aware that when you were saying to people that they need to go into the Capitol, that the Capitol was actually closed during this time because of the ongoing COVID restrictions. And of course, I said, no, I wasn't aware of that at the time. And, and, and to make this brief for this uh, broadcast here and for your listeners, the punchline was that Kinzinger says, you know, I think that in any other given year, it, it, it would have been open. I, and, I, you know, I think that's important to note. So thank you. And he literally answers the question for him and, and puts it on the record for everyone to know that, well, you know, that's just thought that the uh, Capitol was open. And, that, and that's important to note. Thank you for your, uh, your, your answers, Mr. Epps. There are so and many, the there are so you, many things, uh, other things about Ray Epps that there are all kinds of questions. None of them have been answered. And you no. just hit on what's happening as of today. All this stuff is, disappearing who is ray epps i'm willing to say i don't know dan um I, I'm, I'm always i'm always willing to start from that perspective start from that point of reference uh, i i am myself you can't help but be suspicious this is why i said and i've, and I've written this over and over over the last year is I've written that Ray Epps, the conspiracy theory around that Ray Epps was not created by the right wing or by the MAGA crowd. The conspiracy no. theory was created by the government itself. Absolutely. When you do, when you take the guy off the FBI list without notifying anybody and without any explanation, and then you interview the guy twice on this, you know, this glorified committee, um, and then you don't release the transcripts from the interview for a year. The first one has never been released. I'm reading, I, the one I was reading from uh, on New Year's Day was the second interview. We've never seen the first interview. The second interview was released here 11 and a half months after the interview actually took place. That's how long they sat on it. But as soon as, as, soon as his interview was over back in January of 2022, a year after the January 6th event, when his interview was over, the gov this committee just said, oh, yeah, we, we asked him the questions, and, and uh, we asked him if he was a bed. He said no, and we believe him. All right, case closed. That was it. You, once again, you don't get to be the government and do that and handle it and answer it in that manner and not create the conspiracy theory yourself. Well, there is plenty, exactly of, there, there is plenty of fuel for that fire. Um, you know, I've followed everything that you've written, I, uh, I saw many of the videos uh, that you took that day, and, of course, they were spread all over the world. You got in trouble with the FBI, still may be in trouble with the FBI because those uh, videos were used by major networks around the world. And the Epps persona, it keeps coming up over and over and over again. 
I've watched it. This is one of those situations where, you know, I'm a journalist too, and normally you can dig and dig and dig, and you can say, well, it may be this, but it might be this. And like you, you got to start somewhere and begin to build the facts before you come up with the conclusion. But every time I did that with Ray Epps, I always got to a question mark. It seemed in many respects that he was a government plant. And then you could look at the things, some of the things he did, some of the, the video and some of the things that he said caught on these videos. And you could say he may have been a right wing plant, but he is the question mark that I think now, and tell me if I'm wrong, Steve, but I think now we'll never know everything about Ray Epps, who he is, what he was doing, and who, if anybody, he was doing it for that day. We're not going to know unless somebody breaks him. And that may only happen by the political pressure around exactly what I wrote about in this article. And I encourage everybody to click on your website and go read this article that you posted this morning. Because what made my blood boil after reading this line of questioning from Adam Kinzinger of Mr. Epps was the fact that basically Kinzinger, as a representative of the United States government, a representative of Pelosi's establish and preserve the narrative objective of the committee itself, a representative of all that was wrong with the prosecutions that are taking place uh, of innocent individuals, I'm not, I'm not forgiving those who did violence by any means, but of those who did no violence whatsoever, who wandered into restricted areas after the barricades had been removed, after the area closed signs had been hidden by provocateurs. We've seen that on video as well. After the police had retreated, after the doors had been opened from the inside, many thousands of innocent people entered those restricted spaces. And they had no, they had no visual clues whatsoever. And depending upon where you were on that massive complex, that property, that's huge for those who have never been to the Capitol before. It is a huge property. And if you were on what was considered to be those restricted areas at the time, now the government has allocated through that that you know that horrific satanic one point. $7 trillion omnibus bill that you and I spoke of last week or a couple of weeks ago. It buried in that one of the other things is a, a 200 plus million dollar budget increase for the Department of Justice because they needed that, requested that, and asked for that so that they could go after an additional 2,000 individuals who innocently wandered onto the Capitol grounds that day. So they're extending that perimeter of charging people with crimes, not not just to those who went inside the building or did violence with law enforcement or broke things, but they're extending that perimeter of people that they want to arrest out onto the Capitol grounds itself. The difference between those individuals that I'm talking about and the hundreds who have already been charged, arrested, and prosecuted, and now some have spent time in prison, is that Ray Epps was on the front line where he could see the barricade. He could see them being guarded by police. He could see the actual posted area closed signs that were affixed to those barricades long before Trump ever finished his remarks down at the ellipse. And he was there when they were shoved over 
when Capitol Police officers were attacked, and then he broke in a dead run to the next battle line. And then he wants to tell us that he's an innocent man. All the while, he was encouraging people around him, telling them, Mm -hmm. go into the Capitol, go into the Capitol. And so when the government does not charge that guy with a crime, but charges an innocent grandmother who had cancer, 69 years old, puts her in prison for 60 days for a a misdemeanor charge called parading. Well, first of all, should go back to the beginning. The first thing that they do is they do an FBI SWAT raid on your house. They kick your door or knock on your door at five o'clock or six o'clock in the morning in the dark. You respond at the door, and as soon as you open the door, you see a bunch of red laser dots on your chest and on your forehead. And you're in your nightgown or your underwear or whatever the case may be. And then they pull you out into the cold of the morning, put you on the ground, handcuff you, haul you off for a misdemeanor, Dan. And in this case, I was just referring to a 69-year-old grandmother who carried a Trump flag through an open door. She didn't see any violence. She didn't participate in any violence. The door was open when she got there, and she walked through like so many other hundreds did before her, and she walked through with a Trump flag, but because she was carrying that flag, they got her on a charge of something called parading inside a restricted space, and she spent two months in prison without her cancer treatments. Steve, you and I have watched things like this happen, like that 69-year-old grandmother happen throughout our years as being in journalism. We've seen it happen, but we've never seen it happen in the United States of America. We see it happening today in Iran. We see it happening in in Moscow, and we even see it Mm -hmm. happening in Beijing. But now we're seeing it happen in Washington, D.C., that's supposed to be the bed of democracy for the whole world. And they are aggressively with no hidden reasoning at all. It's all out there. They don't care what Americans think about what they do. The government is going to do it because they're the government. And the American people were good for two things. One, voting for Democrats. And two, sending tax dollars to Washington, D.C. Where are we going? You know, I'll go back to something that we were talking about at the very beginning of this call, and that was me reading those letters and exchanges between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. And one of those letters, Jefferson talks about, and he talks to Adams about their repaired friendship because there was a schism in their friendship um, shortly after um uh, Jefferson was, uh, well, after, uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, succeeded Adams for the presidency. Adams was the second president and, uh, he only served a four year term because his friend Thomas Jefferson ran against him and beat him. And, uh, there was a schism in the relationship and these many years later when they repaired their relationship and were became regular correspondents, Jefferson was talking about that signing of the Declaration of Independence and that constitution that was established 
And he mentions in his letter to his friend, John Adams, and he says, even though you and I have specific differences about the, that imperfect document, and they call, he calls it an imperfect document. He said it is still the best document that the sun has anywhere shown upon in history. And that's still and true today. It's still true today. And the point, the point he was making is we have left it in the care of that next generation behind those of us who signed to those documents. And he said, all we can do is hope that they will take care of it in the manner in which it was given to them, which we intended. And unfortunately, here we are 200 and uh, nearly, nearly 250 years later, and we're seeing that um, the care for the intentions of the founding and of the uh, scribing of those documents are being abandoned completely. We had, Dan, we had a department of justice, a system of justice that was the envy of the entire world after the establishment of our republic. And now when I look at the Department of Justice, I see nothing but a Soviet-style system of predetermined outcomes. And that's exactly – and it's predetermined both ways. I watched a predetermined outcome unfold before my very eyes over nine weeks in the Oath Keepers trial. And I'm watching a predetermined outcome take place in the handling of the same government by – of Ray Epps because they have already predetermined that he's not going to face the piper. He's not going to face charges. He's not going to face a SWAT raid at 6 a.m. in the morning. And he's not going to spend time in prison for some reason. And they won't answer that question. Why, when he has done so much more than so many others who have been prosecuted, why is he being handled with such kid gloves? That there is no other conclusion but for a reasonable person to go, well, he's working for them. Or at least was on that day. I mean, what else? What, where else am I to go? I mean, show me where I'm wrong, but I've been studying this for two years now. We're, we're both from Louisiana. We're both from Louisiana. And one thing we learned when I was really young down here, I came from South Louisiana, we duck hunted. And I learned very young that if it quacks and it waddles, <laughs> it's always a duck. And I hate to end this conversation with such a trite little joke, <laughs> but hey, I mean, when you look at, and here we are, we're both intelligent men. I mean, we've got a lot of years behind us and we've made some good decisions in our life and we've made some bad decisions in our life, but we've seen a lot of things and we have the gift of discernment simply because we grew up when you could tell what was right, you could tell what was wrong, yeah. but it's so blurred now that we're pointed at a situation where purposely it's blurred and they're going to try to keep it blurred. But if you uncover the reality of what's going on, they don't even care anymore. You know why? Yeah. Because you can't do anything about it. Yeah. That's sad. Hey, listen, buddy. I hate to end on this sad note, but it's true. All you're talking about, all you've been sharing with us are facts, and we've just got to find a way to swallow those facts and not let fear overtake us. But what we can do, and this is what we talk about here all the time and what you do too, get involved. Call your members of your district, 
your house district, call them and talk to them about specific things. You may, and you probably aren't going to get them on the phone, but you'll get an aide in their office, uh, get their texts, get their emails. I'll, I'll tell you this, every member of the House of Representatives, they have a text number that you can text your thoughts to, and it's not directly to their phones, but they don't talk about that. But you can find out what that number is, and somebody in that office is going to read what you say. Don't be snotty. Don't be ugly. Don't be real lengthy. Be factual and call them to account for the things they're doing and the things they're not doing. If everybody listening today would do that exact thing in your congressional district, I got to be honest with you, Mike Johnson's my congressman, the 4th Congressional Mm -hmm. District here. You hear him on this show all the time, but I can tell you this, um, he's a registered Republican, the number four Republican in power in the House of Representatives. I'm a registered independent, and we get into it with each other because I don't just agree hook, line, and sinker with his political philosophies, nor he mine. That's okay. That's okay. What we've got to do is give them the understanding that we, the people, are still in charge, and we want them to represent us as we have elected them all to do. If we don't do that very little simple thing, it's just going to slide downhill further and faster than we ever thought it could. Steve, I am glad you're out there. I'm glad you're bringing us all these things that are critical for us to see and to understand and get the information on. Ray Epps' name is going to be emblazoned on all of our hearts. And here we are today, (laughs) the 3rd of January. We still don't know who the heck Ray Epps is. (laughs) No, we really don't. But somebody's going to find out one day. Yeah. That's my my goal. That's my positive uh, spin on it is that there's a lot of people like myself out there looking and uh, overturning these stones and looking underneath them. And and, uh, I think think we're going to get to the bottom of a lot of this. I hope you're the guy that finds it out. I can't wait. That would be uh, <laughs> that would be life changing for myself. If well, that sure, happened. sure. Steve Baker, thank you for coming here every every week. We love what you do. Uh, keep us informed, and you are digging every day. Any new stuff you get, let us know, buddy. Thanks, Dan, and happy New Year to you and all. Same to you, buddy. Have a great one. Steve Baker, oh my gosh. He does a lot of work, and it's got to trouble him. If it was me, I'd be worried all the time. (laughs) He'll never let you fall to the lies. Your bulwark against the tide of fake news. Dan Newman, TNN, the Truth News Network. What is Coca-Cola? Is it an excuse to get together? Since 1886, Coca-Cola has been passing on smiles from generation to generation. We've been giving kids scholarships. Like the early birds and the all-nighters. And you get to enjoy what matters most. Coca-Cola. Drink up.
Well, I've been watching the news to see how it's going in D.C. It's 11.39 Eastern Time, and we know the House is getting together. They've got to seat the new members. In fact, everybody has to raise their hand and uh, pledge their oath to the United States to serve, but the new ones are being sworn in today, but they can't do any business until they choose their leader. And if you were with us early on, the first hour, we uh, we discussed at length some of the headway, the headwinds that minor- Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has. He's got to get through them and buy all of the uh, roadblocks there to become the House Speaker, even though he's been the odds-on favorite until recently. As of this morning, I counted 15 Republicans in the House, 15 Republicans that say they're not going to support Kevin McCarthy. So that process will just go. There'll be a ballot. If no leader is chosen, there'll be somebody else that's nominated for consideration, and then there'll be a ballot. We may be there. We could be days being there. And here's the dangerous thing about this. We all know all of the things that you've heard right here on the show, Congressman Mike Johnson. He gave us a laundry list of things that they have been structuring, planning, implementing, getting ready to go. All they needed was to get sworn into office, and they're going to start these investigations. They're going to begin holding the left accountable in specific ways for specific wrongdoing, and they're going to work their butts off, but they can't even begin that process until they get today behind them and pick a leader. We've got 20 minutes left on this show. Between now and then, I'll keep looking just to see if uh, if they've made any progress on that. I don't I don't keep a monitor in the studio, television monitor. Uh, I don't know why I don't. I I didn't purposely think about it, but maybe uh, maybe I ought to do that. Something very critical is coming up, and we very seldom talk about gubernatorial races, but in the off years. There are states, several states, that operate their gubernatorial races in the off years. Three states in the South are going to hold gubernatorial races this November, excluding any potential special elections for any vacated seats, all of which could serve as previews of the 2024 presidential election. The three states, Kentucky, Mississippi and my state, Louisiana, are going to hold off your gubernatorial elections in November. The last regular gubernatorial elections for all three states were in 2019, one year before the previous presidential election. John Bell Edwards, governor here, he's term limited. That means he cannot run for another term, leaving the door open for a crowded field while both Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves, a Republican, and Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir, a Democrat, are eligible to run for re-election. In Kentucky, Bashir is running for re-election after he won his last election with less than 50% of the vote, and he ran against former Governor Matt Bevin, who was a Republican. The Democrat incumbents running in a state that former President Trump won by over 25 points in 2020, Kentucky. Some Republicans seeking to challenge the Democrat incumbent 
or State Attorney General Daniel Cameron, State Agriculture Commissioner Ryan Quarles, State Auditor Mike Harmon, former United Nations Ambassador Kelly Kraft, who served under Trump. The GOP gubernatorial primary set to take place in just a few months, May 16th. Former Democrat congressional candidate Jeff Young is also running to be the state's governor. Kentucky's general election is set for November 7th. Here in my state, because Edwards won his second term as governor in 2019, he can't run for re-election. And we call our primary a jungle primary. A jungle primary. What does that mean? It means that every candidate is going to compete in the primary coming up on October 14th, regardless of their party affiliation. There are no party primaries. If a candidate receives at least 50% of the vote, that candidate is the winner. If not, the two top candidates with the most votes move to a runoff election in November, November 18th. Who's the favorite right now? Well, it looks like State Attorney General Jeff Landry, who's a Republican, is so far the only Republican candidate that has announced a run while other Republicans are expected to join sooner or later. One of them, by the way, may be one of my favorite U.S. Senators, John Kennedy. He's the, uh, he's the spokesman. I mean, he is a spokesman. I love to hear his interviews. I love to see in, uh, in House committee uh, sessions when they're interviewing people for various posts to be hopefully confirmed for, in the presidential administration. He he just has a flowery way of putting it. He, I think, would have a real go at it. But I hate to see him leave the Senate to be a governor. Also out there, Billy Nungesser, who's the lieutenant governor. Our other senator, Bill Cassidy, who's a Republican, and several others. No Democrats have officially joined. Reeves in Mississippi, he's eligible for another term after he won his last one with about 52% of the vote in 19. He appears to be running again, although he is yet to make an official announcement. Those three states. Now, why did I go into this? Is it a big deal? Yeah, it's really a big deal. And it's time to start thinking about it. Governors, they play a heavy role not just in the things that happen within their states, but all 50 governors are heavily involved in shaping the political climate for the entire nation. We've got 50 pieces of American citizens. And within those states, those states' people are really seriously responsible and involved in all of the governing processes And our forefathers, you heard Steve talking about Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, our former presidents. And in their writings, you can find out how heavily involved they were committed to states' governments. In fact, those 13 colonies that were the first founded before any kind of federal government, there were a lot of people that said, we don't need a federal government. We just need to remain independent entities, political entities, and work together, but we don't need a federal government. And the state operations are still critical to what happens here in the United States. 
What else is going on that you need to know about? Well, what about all this Biden spending? We just got that omnibus bill shoved down our throats. Conservatives did. Conservatives didn't shove it down our throats. They shoved it down. They being the left shoved it down. Conservatives slash Republicans down our throats. And folks, I got to be honest with you. Joe Biden's got two years left. He is just now beginning to spend. There's more on the way, I can promise you. I want to get your reaction to all of this spending. Well, $6 trillion. That was a lot of money. Let's yeah. start with that. And so I've never seen anything like this. And I've been in this town for 30 years doing federal fiscal policy. I think Biden is probably the most financially reckless president we've had, at least in your or my lifetime. Now, you can't blame this one, though, Edward, on just, you know, Joe Biden and Schumer and Pelosi, because the Republicans were in on this heist. I mean, half of the Republicans in the Senate voted for this bill, which was what brought it up over the top. And I got to tell you, just from a political perspective, you know, I've never seen conservatives and and donors and voters so angry at the Republicans for making this deal. I think it was bad for the economy and even worse for the party. Well, and I want to ask you, so the Green New Deal they talked about was yep. $7 trillion in spending. Yep. So now the president, as you mentioned, has almost $6 trillion mm -hmm. in spending that he's done. Has their agenda just succeeded? You mean the, the, the Democrat? Yeah, the Democrats yeah. I mean, I, I don't think they, anyone would have ever imagined. Look, they saw COVID as an opportunity to really open the door for every kind of a Pandora's box of liberal programs, including what you just said, Edward, was this massive uh, green energy, green new deal. And so they use COVID as an excuse for this massive spending binge. The, the real challenge now, in my opinion, as we head into 2023, is how do we drain all of that money out of the economy? I mean, you just mentioned the uh, Home Depot uh, former president. Um, the co-founder, Marcus. Marcus, yeah, yep. Bernie Marcus. And he's exactly right. We've put so much money into people's hands. Just I call it helicopter money, right. just drum, dropping yeah. $100 bills out of windows. It's been really difficult for businesses still to this day, three years after COVID hit, to get workers back on the job because we're paying them not to work. Right. So the Federal Reserve uh, has had to raise interest rates. All of this spending, almost $6 trillion, is that a headwind to what the Federal Reserve is trying to do? Yeah. You better believe it is. I mean, I you know, I was nominated to be on the Fed yeah. by Trump. I didn't make it through the process. But boy, do they have a tough job ahead yeah. because all now you have to pull back on that money. The Fed has been completely behind the curve on this, right. by the way. I remember this time last year, uh, Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, was saying that uh, that inflation was going to be transitory. Well, it right. turned out not to be transitory. We've the good news is. As you know, we've gotten it down from 9.1% this summer in terms of the inflation rate to 7.1% now. So that's some improvement, okay? Because energy There are prices. cheers from the White House. <laughs> exactly. But 7% inflation is, is a huge pain it and sure burden is. on the American consumer. And it's a long way. You're exactly right. I mean, and by the way, food prices are still rising. You've reported on this really at a very rapid pace. It's a, the hard part is ahead. You know, go, go to 9 to 7% isn't so tough. But remember, the inflation target for the Fed is 2%. That's where we need to be, 2%. 
that's a long way down. So the idea that the Fed has to be done with uh, with lowering rates, I mean, with raising rates is, is simply not true. They're going to have to do at least two more, but they need help from Congress, Edward. That's, I think, your right. point. If you've got the Fed spending, federal government spending all this money, right. the Fed has to keep trying to raise the rates to, to sop that money up. So has it prolonged those rate increases or made more of them uh, because well, of the government spending? Oh, no question about it. So you got the Fed trying to take the money out of the economy. And what's Congress doing, Edward? They're putting more money into the economy. They're acting at cross purposes. Um, and I think it's going to take both. I think it's going to take Fed rate increases and it's going to take some real. I mean, you got to start to take a chainsaw out of this budget. I w- I've recommended the Republicans in the House. I met with them last week. You got to take about a trillion dollars out of this budget. Now, that sounds like a lot of money. But compared to $6 trillion, it ain't right. that much. Right. So look into 2023. I'm going to get two predictions for the market. So you're sitting here a year from now. What do you think? will? Number one, I'm going to tell you, all your uh, viewers, I, I don't think that the Fed is going to come anywhere close to getting back to the 2% target of Fed. So I think inflation is going to come down, Edward, but I don't think we're going to see inflation anywhere new. I think we'll be at the 4 to 5 to 6% range, which is still a big burden to consumers. Now, the good news is I do think you're going to see by the second half of this year, I think we're going to come out of this economic malaise that we've been in now for the last two years. Remember, the first half of 2022, we were in a recession. I think we could be in a recession in the first half of 2023, but I think by the second half of the year, hopefully we'll come out of this. Well, let's hope. Steve Moore, I appreciate your time. Thank you. In person. Good to see you. Not (laughs) in front of the White House for once. Not in front of the White House. Thank you, Steve Moore. You know, all the speculation in the world about what we're going to do, what our leaders are going to do. It means nothing if we don't have any kind of confidence that the stuff that made this nation so great continues and it's under attack. Let me give you some examples. Last week, leftists and those rhino Republicans admitted under oath that they changed the print settings on election morning on some printers in Arizona. So Republican votes would not be tabulated. On the one day, most Republicans vote. And the Maricopa County judge said, quote, it wasn't intentional. A Republican governor candidate who easily won by multiple points was denied her rightful election. Several million Arizona voters were disenfranchised. Not a word from Republican leaders. Wake up, America. Leftists and rhinos spent the last 40 years owning our election machinery to end your right to vote. And they're about to finish the job. This week, the governor of Minnesota took the lead by planning to register automatically, folks, teenagers who are not old enough to vote. On election day, there will be tens of thousands of names with little or no history who can be voted by election commissions when needed. Democrats are proposing laws making it a felony to question an election. Of course they are. Breitbart News, Fox News, and about every other mainstream-controlled opposition is cowed into submission about this. Election commissions regularly add to election rolls automatically. Every person using any state service, even if that person hasn't requested to be an elector. 
your illegal migrant getting welfare or a driver's license can be automatically added to the state rules. What could go wrong there, right? So while all of this is happening, hapless Republicans claim to have found the secret to election victory. And you know what it is? Get better at ballot harvesting or gathering. I've heard probably two dozen heavyweights in media and in politics saying, you know, the only way we're going to be Democrats is to do what they do, but do it better than they do it. This is the Republican Party that should provide pushback against industrial-scale, sovereign voter fraud. Unfortunately, they see the problem of floating ballots. They do not see or do not choose to see the problem of ever-expanding voter rolls with people who never chose to vote, and many who had no legal right to vote. Working with Mike Lindell, currently the voter rolls for a dozen states have the data for several more. In every case, the number of voter registration anomalies is from 5% to almost 20% of the voter roll. Now use the term, a voter anomaly. Try the 41 voters registered in a hotel in Missouri. How about the registered voters in the Harris County, Texas prison? Examples are so numerous, there's a website you can go to to cover them. Omega4American.com When most, probably all, states have a float of anomalies in voters from 5 to almost 20%, an election commission can control the election outcome for any close elections. Elections are mostly close today. Hey, nothing changes if nothing changes. We the people have got to stand up and initiate the stuff that will initiate the changes. Thank you for being here today. We'll be back tomorrow, the 4th, I hope you're having a good week, and I want to say always thank you for being part of Truth News Network and TNN Live. It might seem crazy.